what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. If you like this show, I have two requests. One is to share it with someone and make sure that they know what a podcast is and how to get it. Either show them iTunes or Spotify. And the second request is let me know if there's somebody that you would like to be interviewed in your personal circle. Uh, People ask me all the time where I find these guests and they're friends on Facebook, friends on LinkedIn, Uh, I see uh, news articles and I simply reach out and talk to them and ask them if they'd want to tell their story. So uh, this podcast was founded on the premise that you don't have to be rich and famous to tell a compelling story. And if there's somebody in your world that uh, you think would be a great interview, I guarantee you they would be. And just shoot me a note at podcast at thewarmfront.com and let's hook it up. Thanks. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks again for everybody that has been listening and sending comments. I I sincerely appreciate it. And uh, today's guest, um, very excited to talk to. And like most of the people started with uh, a Facebook post and then that led to an article on bicycling.com. And I don't want to talk too much at all. I want to turn it over to Mike Cohen, speaker, cyclist, and survivor. And Mike, I'm, I'm really excited and honored to talk to you today, man. Thanks for making the time. Absolutely. My pleasure to, to be a guest. Yeah. Um, I always tell people too, the less I talk, the better. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, the bicycling article, I'll just... Mm-hmm paint some broad strokes. You've ridden across the country on your bike, bicycle twice. Yes. And two very different circumstances. And with that, um, however you want to unfold this story, man, is good with me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so my, I guess my claim to fame or the way, like my title, how I, how I like to describe it is this is the second time I crossed you know, I cycled across the country, but this time with, with a different heart. So I actually rode across the United States twice, first in 2012 to celebrate my six years cancer free. And then last year to, um, to meet my heart donor's family. So with a different heart. So it's like this whole process all it's, it's still crazy. Isn't even in my perspective now to look back and say, I've done this. You know, to be in this position um, is still absolutely mind blowing to this moment, and I really have to figure out a better word than mind blowing because I say that word a lot. But um, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta definitely jump into the thesaurus. But yeah, um, yeah, it all started. I mean, I'm 35, and when I was 18 years old, I was living in New York City, um, going to culinary school, and. Uh, yeah, I mean that. Like, I was walking to school. I was walking to work one day, and I had like, uh, I had this this lump underneath my throat, and I was, you know, I was walking to work, and it was snowing, and I 
I had to hock some 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 phlegm up and it was completely covered in blood. And from that point forward I knew something was wrong. So we so um a couple hours later after my dad came home from work, I woke up in excruciating pain, like screaming at the top of my lungs, and my dad had to physically lift me up, put me into the car and drove us to the to the local hospital. And when I was there they told me I had, or at least it was kind of a miss, all of the chaos that was going on. And I just heard the words cancer. And you have to understand, like just a couple months before I lost my grandmother, a couple, uh, like a year before that, I lost my other grandmother. So cancer was a very sensitive subject in, in, in my world. I was very angry at the concept. And now I was in this excruciating pain and they're telling me that I have cancer. So I, w- I was not a happy person. Yeah. Um, and the next thing I remember is getting poked in the arm and you know, everything felt great. I'm like, Hey, time to go home. And they're like, you're not going home anytime soon. And that, that's when they said, again, you might have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that's when I passed out. So, you know, going to, I guess passing out at that point, I'm like going to bed thinking that I might have cancer. And I thought it was maybe just, just a really bad dream. So I woke up the next day and my mom was laying at the foot of my bed. I was connected to, to life support. There's IVs in both of my arms, there's blood pressure cuffs and, 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 and oxygen mass all over the place on, you know, just, just whatever was beeping and all this just, it just didn't make any sense. And my mom confirmed with me that I, that I had cancer. And then I had to stop going to, to to culinary school. I couldn't work. And I mean, that was my biggest concern. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna lose my job. I'm gonna lose, you know, like I I'm going to school, like I'm paying for school, like like this is this is my 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 life path. And everybody's like, Well, you can't really focus on that now because you're dying and you need to make sure, you know, you gotta fight this. So from that point forward I, I, I immediately just became a patient and you know, everybody around me, my doctors, my, my nurses, my friends, everything was, you know, I was in the hospital for almost three and a half weeks, started my chemotherapy and that was the beginning of the end. And, um, you know, I had about less than a year into my chemotherapy treatments, which, which ahead of me were a total of two and a half years. I was in a year one or not even, not even a full year, like just barely a year one. And I remember, um, just having this dry cough, like we, so originally I'm from New York and um, my parents moved to New Jersey kind of in the middle of my, of my treatments. And so at the time, like we were in New Jersey, we had a new house, like my family thought it would be like a good time to just kind of start over and fresh and not have every, you know, like every turn corner or every, you know, anything around us kind of reminding us of what we were going through. We just wanted to start new. So we were kind of in the market for a dog. And I remember, you know, having this really dry cough throughout the whole experience. And my mom wasn't really happy with it. And at that time, you know, when you're a cancer patient going through chemotherapies and, 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 and whatnot, like you're, like you're on a heightened risk. Like you're constantly, like if something's weird or something's wrong, you're, you're, you're on top of it pretty, pretty quick. So what that meant for me was, um, you know, a dog would be like a nice, way to kind of distract me and, and, you know, just, you know, be a nice way to, um, just to kind of get my mind off life, you know? And, yeah. um, 
so yeah, we went to the hospital at that dry cough and they told us about like an hour, maybe two hours later that I have congestive heart failure. I have pulmonary embolisms, which are blood clots in my lungs. And I had pneumonia all at the same time. And those three are typically a really solid recipe for the end of a cancer fight. I mean, and that's how I lost both of my grandparents was to, was to them both having pneumonia during their treatments. So I thought I was, you know, like I, I didn't, I didn't give up, but at that point I'm just like, wow, I'm like, I'm in a really bad, really bad position. And um, I just remember going to my cardiologist then at that point and was wondering like, so like, you know, when am I going to get out of the hospital? He's like, you're not leaving the hospital. And that was the first time that I was told that I wouldn't make it. And um, not even six months later, um, well, obviously I was out of the hospital and I ran in the San Francisco half marathon. So that was the beginning of my like extreme attraction to someone telling me I couldn't do something. And that's when life started changing for me in a different way. And I, like, I welcomed the challenge. I liked when people told me I couldn't do something. I liked, you know, when, when people told me how bad I was and where I am now. And so at that point I kind of kept moving forward. I kept them trying to be more active. I started working out. I started, um, I mean, it sounds like a really quick turn of events, but that's really how, if, you know, that's really how it happened. It was really, you know, I was finally able to leave the hospital and then I had this second, I don't know if you want to call it like a second win, but, um, just, I, I had this, this deep, deep desire to prove everybody that cancer is not going to stop me. And when that happened, I think my whole life changed. And that's when I decided to move to San Diego to continue my culinary education. And, you know, at that point I was, I, I think I barely turned 21 and, um, I was living in San Diego and, you know, kind of trying to live some sort of college life and, you know, it's not bad living in San Diego with it being consistent, you know, weather. And that was really helpful for my, my recovery because then my immune system didn't have to constantly adapt to different weather, different seasons, different climate and so forth. So, um, I started doing a lot better. I was getting stronger. I was making friends and like cancer was slowly, but surely I was still going through treatments. I was finishing my treatments out there, but it wasn't as much of a factor, or at least I thought. And <clears throat> fast forward to 2017, um, I was 32. So give or take about 11 years. So it was at that point, I was thinking I was 12, maybe 11, 11 or 12 years cancer free at the time. And I had gone through, um, yeah, I was 23. It, I was 21, 21, 20, about 11, 12 years. And like when I, so I got a new job, you know, I was living in San Diego and I, I had a girlfriend, everything was going really well. And long story short, um, I came back from work one day and I was by myself. My, I think my girlfriend was working with that. And that was my ex-girlfriend. And I had this really weird tightness uh, in my chest. And I thought it was just maybe the indigestion. I had just made a steak. <laughs> I, made steak <laughs> uh, I made a steak and mashed potatoes. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> this is a good way to go out. Maybe I'm choking on a piece of steak or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> and, so it was just shooting pain in my left arm, shooting pain in my left part of my jaw, and just really tight, 
really tight pain in my chest. And I'm like, I don't recognize this. I mean, at this point, you know, I'm, I'm over 10 years since my last chemotherapy treatment. And I'm trying to think in my massive Rolodex of, you know, memories when it comes to cancer related stuff, I just couldn't recognize this. And then something just came to me and I, I just remember saying, I think I'm having a heart attack and I was by myself and I was, I'm like, I need to, I need to be seen. <laughs> so like I, I text my girlfriend and I text my little brother at the time. Like I'm going to try to figure out like, how do I text my girlfriend and my little brother that I'm having a heart attack without saying that I'm having a heart attack and I need them to come home as soon as possible. Because, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. And plus I couldn't talk. So I couldn't re like, like, I couldn't even call because I was in so much pain. I, I could barely move. I could barely do anything. And by the time they would come, by the time they came home, I was like literally tipping over. Like I was almost passed out. And the entire time I remember saying to myself, just stay up, stay awake, do not go to sleep, stay awake, do not go to sleep. And they rushed me to the hospital. <clears throat> and they and they confirmed it. I, I I in fact was having a massive heart attack, and later that night we ended up finding out that it was a golf ball sized clot in the left ventricle of my heart. And they said that the only reason why that I wasn't um, a vegetable or even dead uh, was because I didn't go to sleep. I stayed awake throughout the entire time. Wow. And yeah, so like. <clears throat> Yeah, so I remember, you know, as soon as they confirmed that, I remember just looking at my brother and saying, next chapter. And I was very fortunate. Now, it's funny, we were having a conversation before we went on about, you know, how at one point things seemed bad and, you know, at some point they just turned into something good. Well, you know, the same thing for me, like I've always used cancer as my baseline, like how bad life could be. It's never going to be worse than it was when I had cancer for myself. And that was always what I would use to get through any of the, you know, who knows what would have came up through that time. I mean, I've never had a heart attack. I never had any heart issues besides the failure during, during, you know, my chemotherapy days. And that was a long time ago. And I thought that was completely behind me. I thought it was in a clear, I thought everything recovered. You know, I didn't think that this would be an issue. And, you know, for a couple of days they needed um, to put me on medication. I was in ICU for five days and, they told me that they had to remove the clot and they had to install a pump inside of my heart. So it's called an LVAD. It's a left ventricle assist device. And they usually give this for people who have a severe heart failure like myself. Um, and you're plugged into the wall or into a power source, which are these two massive like VHS size batteries, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't have no idea what they are. but, <laughs> but VHS is on both sides about five pounds each and these power packs and being plugged into the wall 24 hours a day was my life. I was on blood thinners. I was on um, a ton of medication. I was, I was, I was told I would never be able to ride my bike again. And <laughs> but like we said before, I like the challenge. <laughs> so, so as soon as they said that, like, you know, like as soon as I got approved to do stuff, like, I mean, I did, I, I went walking every day. Um, you know, I did whatever I could to keep myself in good shape post, post getting the LVAD because I'm like, you know, like I, 
want more than this, you know? And, and I knew that the, the heart attack was just the beginning of, like they told me that the, the LVAD would be a bridge to transplant. So at some point I would need a transplant whenever my heart decided to, you know, to give out or there was potentially an issue with the LVAD, which is possible. And so barely six months later, um, I mean, I had the heart attack in 2017 and I had surgery in August and January, 2018, I just went in for a routine, um, like blood draw, which they had to do every week just to make sure my levels were, you know, safe because my, the, the blood, the blood viscosity had to be a certain, a certain number. So the blood wouldn't get stuck in the pump, you know, that my heart was circulating. So I had this weird clicking feeling in, in my chest. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to be in the hospital anyway. Let me just stop by my doctors and see if they could, you know, let me know if something's wrong. And it turns out that I had another clot in my, somewhere in my body. And because one of my levels, my, my LDH level was, was higher than normal. And what that signifies is that there's a clot somewhere within the body. So they admitted me and officially on January 22nd was the last time I had freedom until I would get a heart because they decided that the next option was either to put me on the list to receive a heart transplant or to have another open heart surgery to implant another LVAD and then still at some point needing another open heart, and then down the road needing another open heart surgery to have a heart transplant. So I could have had another, you know, I could have said, yeah, I would have preferred to have the LVAD and not go for a heart transplant. But then at some point I would still need to be on the list again and put myself in position to get a heart. So I decided to move forward with being, with being listed on the heart transplant list. And what that looks like is a full life body scanning. Like they, they check every aspect of your life. If this is something that you physically, emotionally support wise are, are able to handle because, you know, you're getting a second chance of life. And, you know, that price is not just the concept of here, here you go. You know, like you got to fully adapt to whatever is needed to, to keep the heart that you're getting from someone else's body alive. And so at that point, you know, I'm just waiting around, you know, you know, I was listed, had all these tests and I remember getting the call. They're like, you know, you've been approved. Um, you know, now it's just a matter of, you know, getting that call. And so this is right around my birthday. So this is, this is, this is January 22nd. So I was in the hospital during my birthday. This is my 33rd birthday. And of course, my wish was, I want to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, that would be a good wish. And um, I didn't get it <clears throat> right away, but um, I, ended up, I eventually ended up getting the call on the 24th um, of February. And um, you know, it, it was funny because it was a mixed call. It was like, hey, we're going to discharge you. But hold on a second. We, we have some news. I'm like, okay, so do you? Do you want good news or bad news? I'm like, I'll take the, the bad news first. They're like, you're not going home. And now this is after being in the hospital as a resident <laughs> for yeah. like 30, like 33 days, like with, without like 33 days walking back and forth, seeing other people on the same floor, getting hearts and going home. And I'm like, 
I'm just going crazy, absolutely going crazy. And like, I felt good. Like I felt fine. Like I, I didn't feel anything was off. You know, it was just like that this test was telling him that I was not safe to go home, but I was at least in the best position to get the best heart possible because I was in the hospital. So it was, you know, it was a double edged sword. It was like, you know, like you're, you're in a really good position to get a heart, but you're stuck here. You can't go anywhere. And so I get the call on the 24th and that night, you know, I woke up on the 25th with a new heart. And, um, it was kind of like, and that's really where everything all, you know, really started over for me. I mean, you have to understand, you know, I'm 35 and all the, you know, most of my adult life has been fighting cancer, um, recovering from cancer. And then, you know, once I'm in the clear, then it goes into having a heart attack. So, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And, you know, it turned out that the reason why my heart failed so early is because it, it had cardiomyopathy, mm. which is a, which is a, um, which is a condition that hearts go through when they when they go through significant stress or significant damage. And with chemotherapy, chemotherapy does not discriminate against, you know, healthy versus, you know, non-healthy cells. So unfortunately my heart was a casualty of that. And, you know, for two and a half years of chemotherapy, that was just, you know, just the perfect amount of time that would give me just enough time to live another 11 years after that with the same heart. So I want to go back to your, what, as you've described and, and lived is like a very strong mental capacity for challenge. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at it from the cancer diagnosis, when you're 18 and then the, the heart failure, heart transplant, when you're older, where did that come from? Cause I, I developed that. Um, and I have a very tenuous grasp on it, you know, as a, as an adult, like I mm-hmm. used to, it took me a while as a, a grown man, probably about your age now to figure out that it's effort and you know, skills, you can learn things. And mm-hmm. I grew up, had to grow up even as an adult pretty quick to figure that out. But it sounds like that you've had some degree of that, you know, your whole life where the, you know, where did that come from? It's, you know, man, I, I mean, it's a great question. And like, I, I, to this moment, you know, with all that I've had, you know, I, I've had quite a, quite a good amount of adversity in my life. And <clears throat> like, it's, I mean, it all started when I was 18. I, I, I mean, not even 18, when I was, I think it was 12 years old, maybe even younger than that. I had a, a bad stuttering problem, really bad stuttering problem. And like, it was made fun of by, by teachers, by students, by my fellow classmates. And like, I just, I just realized at a very young age how not to care about what other people think. That was the first thing. And that's really hard to do mm. when you're young because, you know, everything matters how everybody else looks at you when you're young, you know, like you want to look cool. You want to sound cool. You want to, I mean, the concept of cool is, is such a, you know, bullshit concept, but it's such a, <laughs> you know, it's such a, like at that point, like, like you try and telling like a, you know, a modern 12 year old that, or whatever year old, you know, kid not even not, not not even an adult a kid you know like how to live when you know things are tough or like you know like like what's cool or like what's 
like what would you do in order to be friends or find friends and like you know for me like that was something that i learned really early to just not care what other people thought and then once i like it felt like once i learned each of my lessons in my life something else happened and i felt like it was like perfect time it was like okay like you you finally got through the stuttering problem but then you lost your grandmother to cancer and then you lost your other grandmother to cancer and like so like i i, I mean i experienced loss very very young and i think that that was it really helped me understand the value of what i do have when i do have it so when i had good days of cancer and chemotherapy those were like having vacations if i had a day off from chemotherapy you know because my accounts were low or something like that was a great day so i've been able to slow my life down at, at a very young age but forcefully like i mean like you said like i mean it was forcefully you know it's really it wasn't something that just happened it's something that you're forced to go up and moving forward like like i would say now like looking back at everything that i've gone through and done i would say it would like i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for each of those those experiences and now looking back i look at those experiences as not negatives but absolutely the best things that ever happened to me like having cancer was the best thing that could ever happen to me at that point in my at that point in my life looking back yeah, I, I agree. I lost my mom when I was slightly older than you. Well, maybe when your grandma passed away, I was like 20. Okay. And again, being, I think, uh, an arrogant asshole kind of entitled, mm -hmm. I was like, well, this is, I've had my bad event ticket punched by the universe here. And I didn't right. know that things were going to change drastically over the next, you know, 25, 30 years. Right. But, um, yeah, it's taken that perspective for me too to like, there's no way that you and I would be talking had I not gone through my side and, and my script over here on of course, the, the play that I was acting out and same thing for you. And mm -hmm. um, it doesn't, it doesn't make it easier for me. I don't think when this happens, but I know, okay, here's the playbook that I've got to execute. Like this is going to suck. Mm -hmm. This is going to be traumatic mm -hmm. and emotional and sad yep. and depressing, but it's like, well, you know, I, I look back on those events and they don't even really, to me, they kind of seem like a, a, a TV show I've seen a couple of times. Like, Oh, what happened there? Like, Oh yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. And it, it's cool to hear that you cultivated that younger cause I'm, probably 18 years behind you and figuring that shit out. At least trying to. So I'm always fascinated when somebody has that perspective, like how it was earned or, you know, if there's somebody around them modeling it. So, yeah, no, it, it, I mean, honestly, like, I mean, in no way would I say, Hey guys, like go through life the way I have. Trust me. It's a good way to go. <laughs> like I would never, I would never recommend that, you know, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to convey in my life is that, you know, we have what we need to succeed. It sounds such a cliche thing because somehow that just all, yes. that all, yes, that all just rhymed. I didn't do that on purpose, but we all, we all have what we need already, you know? And like, that's what I've learned. And that's what I continue to learn is like, people ask me all the time, they're like, you know, if you, because like my heart thing could have been something that I could have avoided. Like if I was on top of my, 
my consistent, like, you know, every year getting a checkup, like I wasn't doing that. I like, I got stuck in being healthy and I didn't think I had to do that stuff. And, you know, and people ask me all the time, they're like, Oh, you know, would you do anything different? And I wouldn't, you know, I I wouldn't have changed a single thing. I wouldn't have dated the ex-girlfriends that I have. I wouldn't have, you know, eaten that extra, whatever that might've been, you know, cancer. I don't know. Like, like I'm not going to look, like, I'm not going to look back and I'm not going to live my life of like saying to myself and beating myself up to say, why did this happen to me? And like, what could have I done in my past that number one, I have no control over what I did before. So I have to accept my decisions and whatever has happened, no matter what. And if I don't, I'm just going to live a miserable life. And I just don't like, I've been through enough shit that I don't need to make my life any more difficult. And that that's <laughs> like, like that's like, we're talking about control. Like, I mean, I'm 35 and I feel like this sounds crazy, but this is the first time in my life that I actually have control because I, again, I had cancer. <laughs> I had chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is a modern version of torture. I don't care what anybody says. Like it might be effective for, you know, for, for cancer patients and, 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 was it fibromyalgia they use it and 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 I think I think it's rheumatoid arthritis in certain parts of uh, um, I mean it's a very very effective you know technique for very severe conditions and you know what like that shit fucked me up yeah. <laughs> like like not just the the idea of cancer like it fucked me. It, it 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 broke down every muscle I had in my body it turned my red hair black. I mean, I lost my eyelashes, which was my claim to fame as long as I can remember. I had long eyelashes, which now I still, I got them back. But up until that point, <laughs> dude, I got my ass kicked, dude. <laughs> it's not even fair. Like, like, and then, you know, in, in, in 2012, when I decided to ride across the country the first time, my, my goal was, because at that point, I'm just like, I don't give a shit. Like, at that point, my goal was to go to, to ride from the hospital where I finished my treatments in San Diego to the hospital where I started my treatments in New York to give the guy, the cardiologist who told me I wouldn't make it the finger. That was my goal. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> that was my goal. And like where I didn't get to see him, I still did the ride. 3,168 miles later, I, I achieved my goal. And like, that's when cycling became, you know, my world. And I started realizing that, you know, this former baseball player who, you know, loved, practice and love and you know of course whoever played some sort of ball sport as a kid you know has it you know has an aspiration to become something professional you know like I decided to turn cycling into my world like cycling became my my therapy became my you know my my sanity and that's when I decided realizing like there's there's a proper way of handling things for each individual person and i just feel like my experience of firsthand seeing how life is lived through someone that is fighting for life consistently doesn't have to be the same thing for every person going through life itself not everybody's going to have cancer not everybody's going to lose a mom like you did not everybody's going to have you know a divorce or and so forth but that's the whole point is that we all go through something that is traumatic or life-changing or eye-opening and we do all have the opportunity to properly adapt and be able to continue life, not just for ourselves, but most importantly for the people around us. And that's, 
one of the things that I felt that that became very heavy on me is that I have a responsibility with this experience to help teach other people and inspire other people that it could always be worse, you know, and that's one of my favorite things to think about is like, yeah, like I know I'm okay. I know that I can handle what I'm, you know, going through and I'm going to do whatever I can to help other people get through what they can or what, and what they have to. Yeah. I almost, I was going to say pity people. That's not the right word, but I just think that people that haven't been through a challenge and I'm thinking about a story that um, my friend Anna had told me she was at dinner a couple of weeks ago and there was this couple that was like, you know, dairy free, no oil, no butter, (laughs) like just, you know, just this super high maintenance and like both of them, you know, the ultimate Karen, let me talk to the manager. Right. And, and and it's not that you don't have quality standards in your life. Let's say you go out to dinner and the, the meal right. is not good, but yeah, you know, if the worst thing that happens in your day is that, you know, you've got these self-inflicted self-imposed, you know, restrictions on your stuff and like, it's not a hundred percent perfect up to your satisfaction. And that's the worst thing that happens in your day that in Denver, you're going out to a restaurant and you're complaining. I'm like, I feel bad for those people because a real problem is hovering at 30,000 feet and it's going to land on them. And, and I just look at them and I go, yeah, they're assholes, but like, I don't care. Like I don't have to engage because of course, literally they don't matter to me. And I, and like at some point, hopefully they're going to get everything put back into perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest wish for everybody is that so like, like I, I say that all the time. I mean, even people that of my friends, they even say to me like, you know, Hey man, you know, like, like, do you think you should be eating that way? Or like, you know, if I have like a burrito or whatever, like I'm like, first off, <laughs> ignorance is bliss. Number one, <laughs> you're not going to stop me from eating a burrito. Number one. Number two, <laughs> like I had my heart attack, not because of bad eating. I didn't have my heart attack because of, you know, poor, you know, like, like constricted vessels and, you know, high blood pressure. I had cancer and cancer fucked my heart up. It had nothing to do with what I ate. And like, you know, people are just so close. Like, like you're saying, like, you know, these people are you know, so heavily on their health and these tiny, like insignificant items in their lives. And big picture, it's like, that might work for you to maybe eat with no butter or eat vegan or eat whatever it is. But like, you know what? we all have the ability to make those decisions for ourselves and be able to make the proper decision that is going to, you know, best suit that person. If you're going to be a vegan, that's fine. But you know what? Don't, don't blame other people for not, not knowing how to make your food properly or like, just, <laughs> like, like go into the situation, expect to be, <clears throat> expect to be disappointed and then be surprised. Right. It's, like get your shit together <laughs> it's like dude i'm gonna eat that burrito like like it's nothing that you should maybe not eat the burrito i'm okay i have a brand new heart i have another 30 years with this heart <laughs> you have some work to do <laughs> go for a run <laughs> oh man S- something that made me uh, literally laugh out loud in that article was that, you know, you had talked about wanting to throw your bike into traffic because <laughs> you were so yeah. frustrated with it. Yeah. And, and I've, I had flirted with cycling a couple times in my life. I had mm-hmm. um, a 10 speed in high school. And then a buddy of mine gave me a Trek 330 that I rode in the 
like 1992 bike MS up here that was probably two sizes too small. And mm -hmm. I was not in cycling shape. I didn't know about it and rode home from work, which I think was maybe eight miles at the time. And it was just mm -hmm. brutal. And I got a flat tire and was in such pain. I chucked the bike <laughs> over the fence in the backyard. I picked it up and hammered through that motherfucker across oh God, the fence. Oh and uh, so I didn't ride for a couple of years after that. And then <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuck, yeah. you know, probably like five years later, had some buddies at work that I just wanted to hang out with. And they yeah. rode road bikes and mountain bikes. And after playing, you know, JV high school baseball, racquetball, yep, yep. pickup basketball, I was like, this one stuck and mm -hmm. it's cool to hear that, you know, you had just a <laughs> painful start to it too. <laughs> oh no, dude. Like, I, I mean, I, both rides. So like, I mean, my experience with cycling is, is not, <clears throat> you know, you're not going to hear the glorified, Oh, I won, you know, state. And no, like I lived in Long Island and I needed to get to work. <laughs> my, and yeah. my dad worked full time. My mom didn't drive. So I got a bike and that was my means of my first level of independence and, and making money for my own. And, you know, it meant so much to me to have that freedom at that time, you know, at that point in my life, but like racing was never a concept. And, you know, really, to be honest, when I decided to do the first ride, it all came from, I mean, you said this is, this is a non G rated thing. So, I mean, I, I was, I was high, I was high as a kite at a concert <laughs> from weed, nothing else. I would never have used anything else, but from weed. And um, I was watching Forrest Gump and I was outside. I'm like, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to ride across the country. And the next day, I, I think that night I texted my friend who um, was a coach. He was, a, he was a fitness coach and he had his own gym and everything. I'm like, I guess I texted him. Like, could you help me do this? And the next morning I wake up, he's like, yeah, let's do it. We're starting on Monday. And I'm like, and I remember just waking up, looking at the text. I'm like, oh, wow, I guess I'm riding across the United States. <laughs> like, so then, like, I literally trained for, like, six to six to eight months before and didn't ride at all. Like, I didn't even have a bike while I was training. And I was committed to this, like, within, within maybe, let's say, 10 months. And I bought, like, a very basic entry-level bike at the time. And that was it. I committed. I did it. And, like... I never experienced so much physical pain besides, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even compare it. Like, I don't think I experienced that physical pain on my first ride riding across the country as much as I did then. Like I, like the person I was with was supposed to be my friend, supposed to be, and we're not friends anymore, but um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. We averaged 98 miles per day. On my first ride, my, my first day of riding my first, the, the first day of the ride, the longest ride I have done until that point was 48 miles. I did 65 day one. I did 75 day two. I did 88 day three. I did 99 day four. Like I did at one stretch. I mean, he beat the shit out of me. <laughs> like at one stretch, I'm not even kidding, dude. I'm not kidding. Going from, from Albuquerque into Dallas. We did 700 miles in seven days. Yes. I did seven centuries in a row without a day off. So like that was like, that was like, I'm like, okay, first off, I love the bike. I love being on the bike. 
I'm look what I'm capable of doing on the bike, but <laughs> I'm never doing this kind of ride ever again. And so when the ride was over, we stopped talking, everything was fine. And I just rode recreationally. I got, you know, I got more and more into cycling. I got, I, I ended up getting a job for, for Trek. You talked about Trek before. I ended up getting a job for Trek in my you know, local bike shop and went from knowing, you know, not a single item about bikes besides the idea of how to ride them to becoming the top salesperson within the, within the Trek company and being, you know, I got a trip to Mexico. I was part of the million dollar club. And like, now I'm like, if I ever do a ride again, I know exactly what I need to do. I know exactly what I need to train. I know exactly what I need to prepare. I know exactly what I need to have equipment wise. And, you know, when I had that route, and when I, when I had all that experience, all, you know, accumulated, I also built a lot of relationships and, you know, those relationships eventually turned into being really valuable for the ride that we just had in October. I mean, I was very, very fortunate to get sponsored for, um, I would say like 99% of our expenses, specifically of our equipment. And, you know, that's when, that's kind of even how, you know, the whole bicycling article situation came up was, you know, I'm going to see what I can get from this, you know? And I remember, um, shooting out like an Instagram post. I'm like, does anybody know anybody that works for bicycling or, um, you know, for outside or anything like that? I would love to be in a magazine, you know, and, and share the story. And so I reached out to AC, which I didn't even know at the time who ended up being the writer of the article. And, um, she said, yeah, I would love to write about you. I'd love to, you know, talk about this with my editors. I'm going to pitch it to two different people and see what happens. And all in all, we ended up getting the exclusive, which is what you, which is what you and everybody else have read on, on bicycling, which has been amazing. And then, um, I think this month we're going to have the physical issue. So it's going to be in the physical part of bicycling magazine this month. And then, which is the cool one, which is what's making me insane talking about, previous experiences preparing you for the future um we have a documentary film coming out from bicycling um oh kick ass yeah it's it's currently in the process it's currently being tested it's currently doing the whole like thing that i have no idea i have no i i've never gone through the process of a documentary and i've always wanted one and we're going through it right now and it's like, to me, it sounds crazy. And I'm sorry to anybody else that, that are listening out there that is waiting for a heart or a, or an organ, but it's the equivalent. <laughs> like, you're like, Hey, so it might be out on this week. No, it might be coming out next week. No, like, <laughs> like that's how it was for me when, when people would tell me, yeah, like, so last night you almost had a heart, but we didn't like it. <laughs> like that's how it worked. <laughs> like I had four close calls before I actually got the call from my heart. So it's kind of, it kind of feels very similar to that experience. So like I said before, if it wasn't for cancer, I wouldn't have been prepared for that. If it wasn't for having my heart issues, I wouldn't be prepared waiting for my documentary. <laughs> but everything that we've all been through, which is, which is really cool, I feel that's, you know, it's kind of recurring where, you know, things that we've been through previously prepare us for what's in front of us. And oh, I just find exactly. that really, you know, I just find that really interesting how everything ties in and, and it might not seem it at the time. And I'm, I'm talking to all you out there who are going through stuff. Like it might not seem like it's going to get better, but it always does. And that's the truth. Like, you know, it might seem hard. It might seem difficult, but you know, just, just focus on what you're trying to do. And that's, 
that's what you know that's how i'm here yeah <clears throat> i had a friend long ago tell me that you know if your problem doesn't end in a funeral it's not really a problem Agreed. and and it's it takes perspective and experience to look back and realize that because, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've been curled up fetal on the floor, you know, crying mm-hmm. my eyes out and it's like, mm-hmm. it's not a funeral, but it sure seems pretty goddamn important in that moment. So, but, and you know yeah. what? A lot of people don't realize it, but if you're, if you're, I mean, I mean, if it does end in a funeral, it's actually not that bad because then your pain is over. And yeah. that's coming from someone who, you know, who suffered for a long time and, you know, people always talk about the fear of death. Well, you know what? The fear of death, I mean, obviously that's a completely separate conversation, but just to kind of summarize it, like, you know, if, if you're here, you're fortunate. Like you said, like, like if you're here and, 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 and you're able to still fight and you're able to still get up after that really tough day or a tough experience and you're in a good position, like you said, like it's, you know, people just got to be more, more aware. Like you said before as well, like people have to be more aware of what they have rather than what they don't. Yeah. Easy to say in the, the Instagram, you know, social media culture oh, for God. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a similar shift in my cycling career too. Cause I, I raced for, and I started late. So I was, mm-hmm. you know, always going to be old, fat and slow, even when I started and mm-hmm. raced for a couple of years and, I remember one year I had trained all throughout the winter here in Colorado and I got to March and I was fast and fit, but I was burned out. And, you know, one thing that had transformed kind of my view on things is that I went down and had done the Santa Fe century. And I think I'm going to hit that this year, um, had done that, um, probably like eight or nine years. And the first one I think was 2002 and was so terrified of, a hundred miles that, you know, me and my buddy Jeff didn't sleep the night before and Mm -hmm. um, had this guy that was kind of my cycling mentor and Mm -hmm. Kent was just this animal. He was on the, a Schwinn back when they were still really cool bikes and the dude was an animal and we thought we were hot shit and just, he would smoke us. You know, he was 10 years older and just a beast and he ended up um, dying of pancre- pancreatic cancer. Wow. And, and we went down on, you know, kind of like this, we got everybody together that had ever been on a ride with him down in Santa Fe. And he would jump in his minivan when it just got too hard. And we got to like the maybe 28 mile part of this ride. And I just remember, you know, I was in my easiest gear and you know, I'm getting emotional even thinking about this. Like I reached out and put my hand on his back and I pushed him up the hill a little bit. And like, it was just, you know, fuck cancer and just like yeah. all this. But I was like, you know, he jumped in the, the van and his day was done at that point because he just wore out. But mm-hmm. I just remember having to pull off the side of the road and just hang out and just, I lost it for a while. Like it just was all those emotions, but what it taught me and and to get back to the perspective story, like I just rode in to Santa Fe, took a shower, headed down to the plaza. And, you know, it wasn't about the mileage at that point anymore for me. It was about like the experience and I don't have a speedometer on any of my bikes. And it's like, I just like, I, I ride hard, I ride far, but it's like, 
the relationship of the people that I'm with and mm -hmm. just seeing things change and just, you know, evolving with the relationship with the bike. Yeah, no, like, it's really funny you say that because, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I've recently moved into the camper and, you know, I have a lot of time on my hands. I'm, I'm, I'm planning a new ride. I'm, you know, I'm planning a new project for the upcoming year and year plus, but come out to Colorado, man. You know what? I'm to be honest with you. That's very, very, very realistic to me. Like that's, that's, that could be very possible. Um, cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, I got a parking space for you. Come on out. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect. I mean, I have enough solar panels to last the world. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to the point where in cycling, um, well, for me personally, like I, I've been a very, very, like, I mean, throughout my entire life, I've been a very, you know, post stuttering, post um, having issues with confidence, you know, I've been very lucky. Like the, you know, when I moved out to San Diego, I met all of my current friends on day one. Literally, the, the first day I ever went out in San Diego, I met the people that I'm currently best friends with. Cool. And yeah, I was so lucky. And <clears throat> when that happened, like I, you know, I went from being a solo person, you know, really not really feeling confident around other people because I would be made fun of to, you know, not minding being made fun of because as long as I'm making the people around me laugh, and I could laugh at myself, you know, it would be, you know, a way that I could just, you know, make people happy. And I didn't care anymore. You know, like it, it went from me being someone that was so, you know, being, be, being scared to be social to being, to, to love being social, you know, and then with cancer and then with the heart stuff. So like a, a, a lot of people who don't understand the process of heart transplant, you know, was specifically with, with, with an LVAD to a heart transplant is, they say that you're exchanging the cords and the blood thinners for not having an immune system. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So like right now talking about not <laughs> talking about what's current, um, you know, I don't have an immune system. So if I'm in airports, if I'm in uh, a, a large group of people, um, anything that's within close quarters of someone, I can really get sick. I, can, I, I, I could, if you have a cold, that could be flu to me. If you have the flu, that could be pneumonia to me. If you have pneumonia, I mean, it could be the end. But that's just how my life is. And like, I've learned, again, firsthand how to adapt to this. And like, I went from, you know, wanting to be around everybody to like, now, like, I kind of like being on my own. And like, that's, like, that's what cycling allows me to do. And like, I personally, when I ride, I think there's an Instagram account. I think it's called the lone wolf cycling club. Um, and I think it's for people who like to ride on their own. And that's me. Like, I don't like to really ride in groups. And when I rode across the country this time, I rode with my best friend Seaton, one of the people that I met when I first moved out here. And um, it was his first time ever really riding a long distance ride. He wanted to go with me cause he, you know, he saw me through the whole, the whole heart attack thing. And he was there every single second of the day. And, you know, he just wanted to, to be there when I, you know, when I finished this ride and, you know, like being on the ride and being on the bike is, it was such a, I don't think I, I think I cried maybe one or two times, but I definitely let it all out. And I mean, you're talking about not having a speedometer. I do just because like, I like to have and see my speed. I like to just see like my, my progress to see where I've been and where I'm going. But, um, I do remember, um, crying one specific time on the road and it was not anything other than just remembering where I was mm. just not, you know, barely a year ago. 
before that time. And, you know, when I decided to ride across the country again, I didn't care about the mileage. I didn't care about what my what the mileage would be. It was just whatever I had to do to get across the country in one piece and to meet the heart donors family. You know, I, I needed to meet James's mom. I needed to meet James's family to see where he came from. And that opportunity in itself was, was one of very, very rare. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm among a lot of heart transplant recipients now and at least just, you know, via Instagram and, and just different means, but it, you know, it, it, not a lot of people have the experience that I have had of, um, of being able to meet my heart donor's family and to have that closure. And I've, I remember saying before having the heart transplant, how important it was for me to establish communication with the family. And now that I have, I truly feel like I, I probably never need to know the amount of mileage that I need to, to go because like, I'm, uh, cause I'm already on that path. I'm riding that bike, you know, where I'm comfortable, I know now I'm capable of push of being able to push myself more. I know I'm capable of being able to handle whatever comes my way um, when it comes to as a as as an adult. Because you know, for the for the past 25 years, I've been a patient and I've been needing people's help. And the, the concept of being independent was not really was not really practical and. Being on the bike is something for me that is the is has is and has and will probably always be the only place on the planet that I could be fully my myself and I could fully feel safe that I completely have the control of the situation that I have in front of me and if I get hit if I end my you know if something happens while I'm on the bike at least I'm where I want to be and that's what this the bike will always represent to me is a means of travel in so many different ways. Like I was able to, to meet my heart donors family. Like that is unbelievable. And I did it because of my bike. And I figure like what better way to communicate how grateful and how lucky I am and how proud I am to have their son's heart in my chest than to show them rather than just to tell them. And that's just, so that's what, what cycling has turned into me or has transformed to me is like, there's no way that I can't be in this environment anymore. You know, but I have to be on my bike. I have to be around my bike. I have to be on the road as much as I possibly can, because that's the safest. And that's really with all this, <laughs> with all the coronavirus stuff that's going on, I just want to stay away from as many people as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they have. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. And like we had briefly touched on uh, before we started recording, it's uh, March 10th. And then just by pure coincidence, like you and I have been talking for, I don't know, it's been a couple of months trying to yeah. put this together. Mm-hmm. And I, the episode I released today was about my friend, Jonathan Siegel, who had a heart transplant and none of this would have happened without, you know, me knowing Jonathan because of the bike and you and the bike and all this. Mm-hmm. And, um, I would love to unpack ride two a little bit and correct me if anything is wrong here, but like you have to wait a year after a transplant to get in touch either direction. Is that correct? Um, from my situation was six months. Okay. So they said, okay. Yeah. Like there was like, like a, like a, like a period of time. They said, you know, don't try to reach out and 
you know, there's a middleman involved and that they're going to handle it. So that was what I was told. Yeah. And as of, you know, two and a half years later, Jonathan still hasn't met his donor. He's reached Mm -hmm. out and hasn't heard. And, um, yeah. And he says, you know, sometimes it just doesn't happen. They just Mm -hmm. don't want to connect, but yeah. So the family, I would love to hear about, uh, James is the donor, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me that story. So to not to, so to protect the family a bit, you know, like, I mean, there's some parts of it that I won't get too into. Sure. Um, but, um, just to kind of show you how coincidental everything was. So, I mean, when you're in the position to have to receive an organ, specifically the heart, the most important part is size, you know, like, like if, you know, I hate to use this as, as an example, cause hopefully one day it's never the case, but someone like Shaq, right? Shaq is what, seven feet tall, 350 pounds or whatever, whatever size he is. They need to find a heart that's going to fit his chest and that could, you know, be strong enough to not take of take any of the quality of life that he has back once he has that heart. Yeah, that's so, an engine. You got to put the right size yeah, engine in the right chassis. The right start. Exactly, exactly the case. And so with James, James was exactly my height, exactly my size. Um, and it was on my birthday that he had an injury. Um, and that injury caused him to um, unfortunately be in this position. And um, yeah, I mean, and he, it, it was the 21st, which was my birthday. And um, long story short, obviously, you know, to, uh, again, like I'm always a little, you know, hesitant to, to release too much because, you know, I want to make sure that, <clears throat> you know, his, his, his legacy and his privacy is also intact. Um, yeah, we but, can just leave it at first name and family. Keep it anonymous, yeah. dude. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem yeah, at all. Sure. No, he, he ended up, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, his situation was an accident. Um, and he ended up being, um, so he was a Navy flight surgeon. And he had an accident while he was, um, there was a, I think it was a helicopter training exercise. And he got hit. And unfortunately, uh, his tragedy saved, I think it's 11 people's lives. Wow. And, um, yeah. And for, I mean, I was lucky enough to receive his heart and for, I mean, I know his family has reached out to a bunch of the other people that, you know, received some of his, his organs. And one other person responded and didn't want to continue contact and, I was the only person that they've been able to establish. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very weird position to be in. I mean, I understand, you know, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I take the back. I don't understand. I don't understand what it's like to be in James's family's and friends's perspective, especially, you know, with me celebrating life as I'm riding across the country with their, loved one's heart in my chest and then I get there and I'm there to, you know, I, I literally arrived to where he was buried, you know, at the cemetery and I 
fully acknowledge then and I to this minute, you know, will forever be celebrating and they will forever be mourning their loss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's it's another example of how to kind of, you know, disconnect yourself from the result by just understanding the impact of what it is in itself. You know, like the fact that I'm there to show them that their loved one is still around in some capacity and that I'm doing everything in my power to keep his memory and his legend and his, you know, whatever I can to respect him and respect his family is, is all I could think of. And I was very lucky that they, they, his family reached out to me within weeks of me being discharged. So my circumstance with meeting the donor's family and even establishing contact is very, very, very unique. And so like another part of what I'm trying to do with everything that I'm doing is to hopefully, you know, shine some light on how impactful our personal experience was meeting each other, you know, being both sides of that coin and coming into each other's lives and having a place in each other's lives rather than just a void. I mean, I can't imagine every person who's received an organ, specifically a heart that wouldn't want to honor and thank and, you know, show love to the family of who they've received from, you know, permanently, like just a permanent devotion to that person. I can't imagine it not being that connection. Yeah. You know, I could see how it would be a a unique, emotional, powerful challenge on both sides of it, from your perspective, from the recipient side and the donor side, because the recipient Mm -hmm. side, in a way, you are kind of going to, you know, a funeral or a sadness that is anonymous Mm -hmm. and not really knowing that person and opening yourself up for that. Uh, sharing of grief and, uh-huh. and emotions. So I get how from the recipient's perspective, the other way it would be tough. And 100%. I can also see from the donor's family, how it's kind of continually ringing that bell and you, you mm-hmm. may have buried that person and they're gone and you're dealing with photos and memories and emotions. But now here's a literal living piece of that person that you've lost. And Mm -hmm. I even talking through it now, I can't even comprehend what I would, how I would process that. Me either. And even to this day, like I still recount that entire experience and it just blows my mind of how amazing of a family that he has and, and how special of people that his mom and his stepfather and his stepsisters and friends are just ama- like, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Can you take me through the moments on the bike riding up to his grave before that happened? And then the moments leading up to meeting his family, like what's going through your, your mind and your emotions at that point? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that was one of the most difficult days of my life. Um, so, yeah, so we, so we had an RV <clears throat> throughout the process, and we stayed at a, a resort, a, the RV campsite resort. Um, I think it was nine miles from where he's buried. And that morning, I had very fortunately been able to 
secure an interview with the Today Show. And um, so we had a bunch of filming going on that morning. And so there's a lot of stuff going on that can kind of, you know, distract the concept. But then at some point we had to actually, again, get back on the bike. So <clears throat> it was like, it was nice to have all this stuff going on, um, getting filmed, interviewing, sharing my story with, with the, the Today Show. And then, of course, handling what we needed to handle for our documentary. And then just the, the basic logistics of getting there. And so once everything was finally done, I mean, if, uh, I mean, I was nervous throughout the entire morning about like everything being done on time and, you know, properly, you know, time managing everything because now, again, this is my logistics. I created this entire event and hopefully everything would work out <laughs> close to the time. I don't want to be one of those guys. And so we got on the bike and I was really having a tough time. I had a, I, I had the beginning of a pretty bad upper respiratory infection. Mm. And so like, I was battling that. I was, I was coughing. I was, I was nasal. I was stuffed, barely, barely could breathe, but it was a beautiful day. Um, I was feeling great. Like, like I didn't even know why I put my, my computer on, but I did. And, um, I remember getting close and I started feeling more and more emotional. And I remember turning on the road that of where his cemetery is located. And my buddy Seton was like, are you ready for this? I'm like, not really. But like, I mean, it felt more and more intense as I got closer and closer. And once I got to the entrance of the cemetery and we turned in, I felt like my heart dropped, like my heart, like I was functioning at the minimum. <laughs> um, my brother was there, you know, with the RV. My ex-girlfriend was there. My my dog Lincoln was there. I mean, my little buddy. And I mean, we were about from where the entrance was to where we would be stopping and meeting his family was a, probably about, I'd say like a quarter mile, honestly. Um, and so I didn't see him right away. I didn't see the group of people. Um, but then as I was getting closer and I saw the group of people, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> like I'm there. They, they see me, you know, and, and I get closer and closer and, you know, I get to the point where like I stopped the bike right in front of them. And on the left side of the road, it was his entire family. And then on the right side of the road was James's mom, James's step, dad and James's stepsister and when I get there you know I get off the bike I handed it to my my buddy and I just said hi to his mom and at that point I feel like that broke any ice it was such a simple the most influential thing I've ever done and said in my life was just I'm like hi and I walked right up to her I gave her a massive hug you know I hugged everybody around and you know, at that point, we're going to walk to the grave. So we just started, you know, we just started to just chat a little bit and, you know, tried to break some ice and just make some laughs. I was nervous. I was, you know, I had tears in my eyes. And then we all walked to where he's buried. And, you know, I finally was able to, um, to talk to him, you know, face, well, you know, as, as close as I could. And, Yeah, I, I just can't, I can't even, I can't even explain to you 
the massive emotion that um, that was exchanged. I feel it was exchanged, you know, because I, you know, I felt bad. I'm like, I'm like, you know, like, dude, like you're such a inf- influential, special person in my life, and I can never meet you. And you know, that's the one part of my life continuously that I'm always going to continue to think about and to be inspired by is that, you know, I'm living for the both of us and I have a lot of living to do and a lot of things that I want to do that I'm pretty positive that he would be proud of. And that's all I can think of. Yeah. As you described um, meeting or visiting his grave and meeting his family and as you told that story, I don't know that there could have been a more perfect way that that could have happened because it's so, it just, it fills in every square. Right. And it's in yeah. not that it was, you know, for dramatic effect, but no. he, where he's buried and sort of the, the remembrance of him and then the the celebration of his memory with you. I don't know that it could have been even scripted any more perfectly than that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think so either. I mean, you know, we we the both of us, unfortunately, were destined to be together in, in this capacity, and you know, all of that where it didn't make sense then and. But it all did because, you know, I, I definitely put it out there that I wanted to meet the family and not to say that other people don't as well, but you know what? It happened to me. I, would, I was very fortunate to have that experience and I can just tell you as well as anybody else that's listening that, you know, that have or know anybody that has received a heart transplant or like I said, any transplant in that, in that matter, like, you know, it is such a gift to be able to establish that contact. And if there's a way to find a way to do it from both halves, if I could, you know, help influence or I could even have James's family influence that side and, you know, really put out there how special it is, maybe that could sub- start to bridge some gaps. I, I would hope. I mean, just, the experience that I had, you know, quite possibly was once of a lifetime in a lot of people's lives. Not even, not even my own. Like, 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 like. I'm sure a lot of people live vicariously through me meeting my donor's family, and I know a lot of people out there that would have better lives throughout what they're going through if they were able to just have that person to text, have that person to say hi to, or how's everything going, or you know, to have an extra person to you know to give a hug to, or whatever. I mean there's so many pieces of that puzzle that it's a full mystery and you're, and, and people that don't get to have that, that connection are living because of a stranger that they've never met. And there's a possibility that they'll never understand who and what and where they came from. And that's, that's pretty intense. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have that same philosophy. Like I, I will, surround myself with as many people as I possibly can that just, you know, provide, you know, challenge or value or interest or just Mm -hmm. a connection, right? It makes the world Mm -hmm. seem so much less large and scary and Mm -hmm. anonymous. And yeah, I, 
I, I seek those out and it's just a, a great feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't ever try to summarize conversations like this other than just, you know, cause <laughs> yeah. I, I have no perspective and it's not my role, but it's just been, um, amazing to hear this. And thank I, you. yeah. And I, I, I thank you for making the time, dude. It's been very impactful. And the, these are the ones that I seek out that are, that have a, a lasting impact on me. Yeah. I mean, it's my pleasure, man. I mean, it's, it's, I'm to the point where in my life, in my career that I will never live a normal life. You know, like that, like the concept of normal is, 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 is my own. I mean, everybody has a, a vision of normal, but for me, what I thought, you know, was normal is now, you know, is not possible. It's not possible for me to achieve that. Like, you know, like I, you know, like I broke up with my ex-girlfriend the day I got back from the ride. I, you know, I, I had been laid off by my, by my dream job, you know, the day I got back from the ride. And <clears throat> so all these, these, these losses typically for most people and even my old self would be losses and reality is their gains. And, you know, like I, I'm very lucky to have all that I've learned in my life to be able to be in the position that I'm in now. And I wouldn't change a single thing. Like I am in love with the independence that I now have. I am in love with the, the, the full freedom to really explore you know, who I am. I mean, I don't really know who I am. You know, I've, I've been, I'm 35 and the last time I can remember being fully healthy or not being in a recovery state was like when I was, you know, before cancer and I barely can remember that. So like, you know, my, my goal now is to inspire and, and, and hopefully like affect and influence people of what, you know, like I said, from the beginning is like, you know, we have enough and just sometimes it's a matter of learning how to organize those thoughts and those experiences to be able to be looked at in the most optimal and the most, you know, personal way of being able to develop and to improve ourselves. You know, we all have the ability to turn our adversity into an opportunity. We all do. I don't give a shit what anybody says, you know, we've all been through stuff and there's people out there that have been through worse and that will be through worse and we could be through worse. And, you know, like I really believe wholeheartedly that we meet each other to be able to, to, to be able to support as well as to help people, you know, through their own shit. And, you know, I really appreciate you having me on and, you know, like I know, I know for sure that whoever's listening to your podcast and, you know, whoever's involved, like we'll, we'll, we'll leave with something positive. And that's all I, you know, that's my, I mean, that's, that, that inspires me. And I really am very grateful for your time of you having me on and being able to share my experience with your people and, and, and Jay, of course with you. Yeah. <clears throat> and I've been asked, you know, over the course of doing these interviews, like, what's your, you know, wh why are you doing this? What's your end goal? And honestly, it's just, if I have a relationship with the person I'm talking to, then that's all I want. And if, and if I like it, great. And if somebody else listens to it, great. But I, I do it just to, you know, have a, just build a relationship. So. Yep, exactly. 
Well, like I said, man, come out to Colorado. You got an open invite, and uh, sounds good. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to ride with me, <laughs> but I would like to. I would like no, to. No, no, dude. I'm, I'm riding. So my next. So I'll tell you my next project. My next. So I'm right. So right now I'm heading towards Alaska with the camper, and I'm gonna be riding through as many national parks as I could in route. And then when I get to Denali, I'm gonna ride from Denali to Maine through Canada. So that's my goal for 2021. I'm not going to be able to do that this year, but that's the goal for spring and summer of next year. Awesome. Yeah. I'm just going to start doing some rides that are visually appealing and, you know, just start seeing stuff that I haven't seen in my life. I've got a friend I met uh, through Facebook up there in Alaska and I'll connect you guys. I, I don't know where he's at or, but he just posts yeah, like yeah. amazing fat bike photos. And so if you guys, yeah, I'm going to get one of those too. For sure. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has been um, amazing and impactful and just um, here. cool experience for me, dude. I, I think um, I consider you a friend and if we were close or, geographically we'd be hanging mm -hmm. out um yeah definitely and where can people find you i'll post you know all your social stuff and like yeah where do you want um, to reach out so my website is mrmikecohen.com so m-r-m-i-k-e-c-o-h-e-n and then my instagram is pretty much the same thing um and that's the main way i mean i have facebook and all that stuff but i i primarily deal with instagram and, and my website nice yeah i just uh yeah, I love your perspective, man. And um, thank you. I, it just reminds me to keep mine too. Absolutely. Hello, everybody. This is Matt. I wanted to talk to you again about HelloFresh, and they do not pay me for this. They don't even know who I am. I actually pay for this service once a week. And I wanted to update this um, spot or this plug simply because of being quarantined and isolated and my overriding tasks are to reduce stress and find joy and that comes around cooking with my daughter and we've been doing HelloFresh since January and I'm re-recording this because just got an email from them talking about uh, how they're taking care of their employees they are increasing wages for their distribution centers, they've waived attendance for people who can't work due to school and daycare closures, they've enhanced their sick time policy, and they also have donated uh, over 800,000 meals since January, and customers have donated an additional 30,000 meals. But beyond that, like I had mentioned before, reducing stress and finding joy, uh, even before all this, going to the store and picking out ingredients, finding recipes, just drove me crazy. And once a week, we get a HelloFresh box. It's got uh, pre-portioned ingredients, all fresh, and we cook. Uh, we put on some music. We laugh. We just have a great time in building this around our, our dinner time. So if you want to check it out, and again, I pay for this. They have no idea who I am, but just one way to... Uh, make your life a little easier go to bit.ly that's b-i-t dot l-y slash hello fresh mat for a forty dollar forty dollar <laughs> forty dollar off coupon uh credit towards your first order so check them out